Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today's guest is president of Parkland College, Dr. Tom Ramage. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be asked. Now, you joined Parkland in 1998. You were chair of the newly created Distance and Virtual Learning Department. You became president in January of 2008. Give us a little bit of your history and how you rose through the ranks there. Oh, it's a cautionary tale. It's not, if you want to be a college president or a college administrator, for that fact, I wouldn't recommend my route. It's a bit unusual. Typically, people who are in positions of leadership at a community college come through a couple of different routes. None of them are the routes I took. I came from a sort of a technology background where I got involved in online education and interactive video conferencing very early in my career at a time when there weren't many people who were doing that sort of work. So it became a a sought-after skill, I suppose is the best way to put it. It led me to Parkland College uh, in 98, as you said. And they were very interested in putting as many courses online as was feasible. And this is very early in the movement to convert online courses. We had probably 16 students enrolled in one or two courses in 98. And within a couple of years, maybe two or three years, we grew that number to about 6,000 students. So that was attention getting. You were an early adapter to what everyone is doing now. Well, the credit goes to the faculty at Parkland. My role was to facilitate. I was tasked with putting the processes and the systems and the software in place that would enable faculty to teach online as effectively as possible. And they embraced it. There was no convincing needed. They were very interested, by and large, in what the medium could do, how it would work. And boy, online education exploded at Parkland. We were number one in the state amongst universities, community colleges, public and private for probably 10 years. Do you still have nearly 1,000 employees and do you still have around 11,000 students each year? The student count is is pretty close, uh, about 11,000. And that's down, I think our highest year was in 2012. We had about 25,000 students at Parkland in a given year. In terms of the number of employees, that's shrunk as well. Since the pandemic began, have you had to furlough or lay off staff? Oh, great question. We have not yet done that as a result of the pandemic. However, we have just put in place what we call a voluntary separation program. There's three versions of it, and the details are relatively unimportant. But the idea is that we know that we're in a budget situation. Next fiscal year, we're projecting about $5 million deficit. And that needs to be fixed. We can't operate that long, multiple years with that sort of deficit. Although we have a savings account, if you will, we need to fix that structural problem. And given that 80% of our budget is salaries and benefits, people are the, are the place to, to do that. Along with shrinking enrollment, we need fewer people across the board. So a voluntary separation is the first step in, uh, in reducing our overall employee headcount in a way that's now, at least in my opinion, humane. It's a way that employees can raise their hand and say, I'd like to do something different and thank you for the monetary contribution that allows it to be possible. Your history is perfect for this because your doctorate in education focused on cost efficiency, so you're the perfect guy to do this. Will Parkland implement more online programs than in person during this pandemic? What's this fall going to look like? I wish I had a crystal ball. That would help. The mix of online versus traditional is obviously going to go up. It's going to go up across the country at universities, community colleges, probably K-12 education as well. And that's sort of forced on us. If we had a choice in the matter, we would probably offer the same mix as we have in the past, which 
is about 10 to 15% of our total student population enrolled in an online course. That seems to be the sweet spot. It's where we've been for close to 20 years. However, the, the situation in Illinois and in Champaign in particular is that we're going to have to have far more online courses in the fall than we might ordinarily choose. We're prioritizing courses that where students come to campus in terms of those that are lab focused, think automotive or dental hygiene or nursing, where you have practical skills and things that you need to interact with. And we want those students to have priority on campus in a safe way. So if you're in a class that is primarily lecture and it can be done with Zoom or some other technology, we're probably going to have that online. In an op-ed you wrote recently, and I loved this piece, you said, quote, Parkland College can and will play a key role in our community's stabilization and rebuilding efforts in the months and years ahead. How do you envision Parkland's role in that? It's not really magic. It's something that we've been doing since 1967 when we were created. The idea is that a community college, whether it's Parkland or one of the 47 other in Illinois, adapt to the needs of their community. And that means constantly reviewing programs, degrees, certificates, courses of study, and making sure that they're applicable for the community we serve. So we've closed a number of programs over the years and opened new ones to replace them. Watchmaking used to be a program at Parkland, if you can imagine. There's not much call for watchmakers these days. (laughs) Uh, Actually, my mentor used to call this process eliminating the buggy whip program. We don't have horse-drawn carriages anymore, and there's no need for buggy whips. So what's the next thing? We do that constantly. We try to maintain a mix of programs. A third of our students come to us for courses that go to a university that transfer there without any questions being asked, whether that's in Illinois or across the country. And that's probably pretty stable. That population is not going to change that much. Another third of our students are enrolled in professional or technical programs. There's a lot of change in those programs, as you might imagine. Things come and go, software changes, business community has different priorities at different times in in the world, and we adapt our programs to make sure that they're relevant and they provide a cost-effective option for students. We don't want to put a student through a two-year program, have them graduate, and make no more money than they would have if they had not gone through the program. And unfortunately, there's a lot of those sorts of careers. The last third of our students are probably in one of those first two buckets, but they don't know it yet. Oftentimes they come and say, I just want to take a couple of courses. I want to make myself more valuable to my employer currently, or I want to change careers. And oftentimes that leads to enrolling in a degree or certificate, whether it's professional or transfer. So we're always trying to be relevant to the community in any way we can. We have advisory committees for all of our technical programs where we're talking with the employers. What do you need? How are our recent graduates doing when you hire them? What additional courses do we need? What should we take away? Uh, And it's a pretty good model. The students that like to do the program from high school to Parkland, that kind of bridge that you offered, will you try to continue that very valuable program? The two branded names, the Parkland branded names, one is called the Early College and Career Academy. And that's for students who generally come to Parkland's campus and work in one of those technical programs, welding, automotive, nursing assistant. New one for the fall is education, so teacher prep. That's very well enrolled. We have probably 250 or so students ready to go in the fall for that program. And then there's a corollary. It's called the Early Transfer Academy, and this is designed for students who are trying to get all their gen eds ready to go. So when they graduate from high school, they're enrolled at a university someplace with a big leg up. 
the doors to Parkland opened in 67. So from decade to decade, how would you say Parkland has changed the most? Let me start with the ways we haven't changed. Mission has always been one of affordable access to the community close to home. That's a constant throughout Parkland's history from 67 through today. We serve our local community. There's 3,000 square miles and 66 communities in Parkland's district, and we're beholden to them. That commitment to a low tuition rate with high-quality classes will remain, I'm sure, well into the future. I mentioned the programmatic changes. That's, uh, again, a constant. We're always evaluating what our employers need. If a new business comes to town and they have a significant need, we'll want to talk to them as soon as we can and that either adapt what we currently have or create something wholesale new to support that business and industry. Some of the things that are maybe are not so positive in the last maybe 10 years or so, we've seen an explosion and no hyperbole there, an explosion in terms of the rules and regulations and laws that have been imposed on higher education nationally and statewide. The legislators in particular are far more interested in managing higher education than I think they ever have been in the past. And this extends into how we spend our budgets, how we teach our classes, whether we have developmental education or not. It hasn't dipped into what exactly happens on the course syllabus, but I would imagine that's not far away. And I think that's very unfortunate. By and large, there have been a couple of changes, regulatory changes, that I think have been good. But by and large, it's, it's destructive to higher education, and I hope that trend reverses that the lawmakers, the politicians, the community members realize that the people that they hire to teach courses and to manage those courses generally have a pretty good idea of what students need and what the community needs. Other things that have happened on our campus in particular, we've grown far more programs to support students with needs, and that can extend from a food pantry on campus for students with food insecurity to personal counseling. You know, this is not academic. This is not what course should I take next and does my degree transfer, all that good stuff. This is personal counseling. So whatever the students are going through, they have a person on campus to talk to to work through those issues. Our accessibility services office has grown significantly. So any students who come in with any sort of needs, whether they're physical or psychological, we have an office to take care of them where we didn't have much of an office. If you go back 10, 15 years All that's evolved through our history. Your complaint about the legislature getting too hands-on with higher ed, I've heard that a lot from your colleagues at the University of Illinois. Right. Do you consider the U of I a competitor for students and dollars, or do you consider them a partner? I think overwhelmingly the university has been a partner, and historically. So I've been at Parkland 20-plus years, and we have known every chancellor, every president, very most of the deans, and that's through efforts that both Parkland has made and the U of I has made. We have relationships in the Institute of Aviation is a, a great example of that, where it did not, it no longer fit the university's mission, but it, it very much fit Parkland's model. So that was a, and it continues to be a relationship with the university in making sure that that program is as effective as it can be. You know, we run that program out of land that's rented from the university. We're at the airport. We have a hangar that we rent from the university. We've had other programs like the Institute for Fire Science, the IFSI, where we provided credits for the students that they served across the country. That's since ebbed for a number of reasons, but there's lots of those examples. And probably the biggest one is the Parkland Pathway to Illinois. 
where students are duly admitted to both institutions. They take their majority of the students take their credit hours at Parkland for the first two years with maybe a class at the university. And then their, their final two years, they move over to the university and finish their baccalaureate degree. And that's fabulous. That's a new newer development that has been a model, I think, nationally. Parkland CARES Act program. Tell me a little bit about that program. The CARES Act is a federal program that provided money to higher education in general across the country. Parkland received uh, right around $3 million from that federal program. Half of it is institutional dollars that are designed to help offset the costs we've incurred already in moving last spring's semester to a totally online format. We bought a bunch of computers. We upgraded our technology, our infrastructure to support those students. That's institutional stuff. The other half of the money, about $1.6 million, is designed for students. And that is handed out via a a process that was developed in guidance with uh, the federal government, which changed about five or six times, but that's sort of irrelevant. But we've managed to figure out a way to distribute that money to students based on need to help offset their expenses, whatever they are. Those expenses may not be tuition or books. They may be childcare services. They may be a, a new set of tires on your car, or it may be food. That money is generally unrestricted. A student can spend that on whatever their most immediate need is. So that CARES money, when combined with the existing federal and state financial aid programs for students who have financial need, and the third component of that would be our foundation scholarships. We have a, a very large number of endowed scholarships through the Parkland Foundation that come in very small to very large increments to help students with books, tuition fees, all that good stuff. So the bottom line there is if a student wants to come to Parkland in the fall and they have any sort of financial need, there's a good chance that we have a program, one of those programs that's going to help them out. And I think there's a pretty good chance that a student might be able to come to Parkland and not have to pay anything, which is remarkable. What is your role in terms of soliciting or lobbying for those additional funds? Do you do that from private individuals? Are you forced to go to Springfield? Or is there federal money that comes in? Where do you get your supplementary funds from? Sort of all of the above. So the local conversations are more around scholarships and or equipment needs that the college might have. So there's various individuals and or businesses that we're talking to on a regular basis, especially those where we provide a steady stream of graduates to help with their employment needs. So that's one conversation and a very, very important and very successful discussion. Cara Hospital is my best example. They've provided dozens of scholarships every year in a variety of programs. They've helped offset the cost of some faculty members. There's always equipment coming from them, whether it's an x-ray machine or a mammography machine or a ventilator, that relationship and those relationships in the community are fabulous. At the state level, we're very engaged with our senators and our representatives. A good chunk of our revenue comes from the state, and we want to ensure that that remains stable. Unfortunately, it hasn't. It's about 9% of our total revenue these days, whereas if you go back a decade or so, it was 27% of our revenue. You can see that that decline over time, and that's, that's fairly significant. So we want to make sure that that number doesn't go any lower, if not go up. And then, of course, we do some federal stuff. Less so on the federal side, 
The federal government is is less involved what happens at a community college, although we do have some National Science Foundation and other grants that we try to touch base with our, our representatives in Washington, D.C. at least once or twice a year. So, yeah, it's always lobbying, always making sure that people remember the mission of the community college, the value of the community college, and the reason why we exist, which needs constant reinforcement. So you interact with politicians a lot, but you have zero desire to be one yourself. Oh, I would do just about anything in the world before I would consider becoming a politician. Almost anything. I know nothing about you. I've known you 10 years. I know nothing about you personally. What do you do for fun when you're not leading college? Well, I read political things. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) For fun. My wife and I certainly are fans of being out on the water. If there's a beach even closer, that would be even better. We're boaters. We're we're swimmers. We like to go out to eat every once in a while. My favorite restaurant is Hank's Place downtown. If you know Victor Fuentes, he's got some some great restaurants. But Hank's Table, I'm sure, I guess it's called. It's got a great feel. And, you know, Victor has got a great story. He's a classy guy. I like him a lot. He's going to be our Entrepreneur of the Year one of these days for that program that we have at Parkland. We're going to recognize him. When there's not a pandemic going on, boy, you know, good food, good drink, good company. It's the best place in town as far as I'm concerned. One of the things I noticed as a student and that I've noticed walking through the halls of Parkland is that there's an incredibly diverse student body. Are you proud of the diversity of the instructor administration level as well? You're right. Parkland is very attractive to local residents, the minority community in particular. Parkland is an overrepresentation of minorities enrolled at the institution, which I think is a great thing. That means lots of things to me, that it's an attractive place. Our tuition isn't, it's always going to be too high, but it's not turning people away. Let me put it that way. We match that with a performance indicator, our goals, and it's been a goal for a very, very long time, 25 plus years, is to match the diversity of our faculty and staff with that of our students. That's a tall order. We've never managed to achieve those goals. We've made some good strides in terms of faculty in particular, but it's a very difficult process. It may surprise you to know that I hire very few people as president at Parkland. I think four, maybe five. The vice presidents hire maybe 10 each. It's difficult to attract minority candidates to Parkland for a number of reasons. If you think about the faculty side, to be a faculty member at a college or a university requires a master's degree. And not only a master's, but one in the discipline. So a curriculum and instruction master's degree or a higher education leadership or a, another general master's. Nothing wrong with that. But in order to teach, your master's must be in the discipline. If you're going to teach math, it must be in math. Not the teaching of math, but math. And so on for all the other disciplines. That limits our pool, which means those minority candidates in particular that come along have huge choices, which is a great thing for them, but not so great for Parkland. Our pay, our our salary schedule is determined by a union contract. We don't pay as much as the University of Illinois, surprise. We don't pay as much as some of our other community colleges, particularly in the Chicago area and suburban areas. So the people who want to come to Parkland College want to be in Champaign for whatever reason. They went to school here. They have family here. Bottom line here is the pool is pretty small. We've had diversity interns and professors of the future where we actually pay students to finish their master's degree in that specific discipline and then come to Parkland and teach for two or three years and hopefully stay on. 
We've had some success with that. But again, once you've got the, the experience and the master's degree, you can write your own ticket. You know, there's 47 other community colleges that are competing with us for that master's degree biologist, not to mention the universities. And salary and prestige of the institution play a big role. We constantly try. We've had some success, but by and large, we have been unsuccessful. So that means we'll continue. We'll continue to try. Last question before I let you go. I have to ask, are you scared about this coming school year? Oh, unequivocally, yes. This is a strange year. Things are really weird. This is not a normal time. We have not been normal, seriously, since 2012, I think, was our last sort of year where nothing strange happened. 2020, from that respect, is no different. The scale has increased significantly. But yeah, I'm, I'm not terribly confident that we're going to get through uh, fall and spring semester without some major adjustments to our plan of attack. And you, you can imagine what those things might be. I think when we have an influx of students from the University of Illinois, we have 300 plus international students at Parkland alone. When we start putting all those people in a confined space for more than 15 minutes at a time, and try and manage a mask mandate and a social distance mandate. I'm concerned about what that outcome is going to look like. So yes to your question. Long answer to a short question. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Dr. Tom Ramage, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure.